The Secrets of Middle-Earth is brought to you by the StarQuest Production Network and is made possible by our many generous patrons. If you'd like to support the podcast, please visit sqpn.com slash give. You're listening to The Secrets of Middle-Earth, where we discuss the hidden themes and deeper layers found in the works of J.R.R. Tolkien, whether in his writings or in any of the media derived from them. On this episode, we are going to be discussing the faith of J.R.R. Tolkien, the religions of the Legendarium, and the impact of Tolkien's faith on his world. I am one of your panelists, Jeff Hecker, and joining me this episode are Caitlin Fashista. Hi, Caitlin. Hi, how are you doing? Doing well. Thomas Salerno. Hi, Thomas. Hey, Jeff. How are you doing? I'm doing great. And Thomas Sanherho. Hi, Thomas. Hey, Jeff. All right. So before we get to the topic of this episode, um, there was a bit of Rings of Power casting and directing news that I thought we could touch on just uh, since we've covered the show. Um, the first of the casting was they announced several new cast members, along with one of them being recasting of Adar, who, if you remember, uh, Adar was the dark elf slash leader of the orcs in Rings of Power. Um, he's... I, wasn't as familiar with the new actor, the previous actor I knew from a couple things, but um, just wanted to see what y'all, any thoughts y'all have on that. Um, I, I know I, the character was one of the most compelling to me this season. So it'll be, you know, it's a bummer to lose the original portrayal. And from what I read, it was the actor's choice, but you never know behind the scenes, but any uh, thoughts on the casting or recasting? I was sad at first. I was uh, very surprised, but now looking back on it, I think it makes a lot of sense knowing how they did all the promos. Like they didn't really play up the character Adar and the actor Joseph wasn't at any of the press stuff. Um, so it seems mm. like they must have known for a long time that he wasn't returning. And it was sad because I think he was my favorite character. Um and we're not losing the character. We're just losing his portrayal of him. So I'm excited to see where they go with it. But it was also kind of like a a, a bit sad. Yeah, for sure. His, his is an interesting spot, too, because he has to he was a lot of prosthetics without it, kind of the necessity of prosthetics. You know, you're not playing. Maybe he got the role and didn't didn't know that there was going to be quite as much of a heavy makeup component to it. So, you know. That's always tricky as an actor. You're thinking about that, that how that affects you and and your day because a, a majority of their day, a lot of times, is spent just sitting in the makeup chair trying to get ready for stuff. I think I heard from one of the makeup people that his makeup was the most intense of anyone's. Yeah, and really? I'm sure that's because they Earlier. they had it was so intense, but they also had to make it look natural. Whereas mm. with the orcs, you're like a hundred percent orc. But he was so in between that I imagine it was it was tricky. Yeah, well, it's a bummer. Um, I'm glad we got to see him though. So hopefully, we'll. I'm um, looking forward to seeing what the next um, actor brings to the table. Um, and then, like I said, they announced several new cast members, and I kind of paged through their IMDb's, and uh, no one like super well of of note that I really uh, have known them from anything big from, but just several bit parts, but. Um, looks like they're just expanding the world, which is cool. Um, I believe Thomas and her, you posted some information about the directing for season two. Yes. So uh, it looks like we're going to have uh, one director back in particular that I know I'm really excited about. And I think, Caitlin, you had said you were really excited about it, too. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, Wayne Chiup was one of the primary directors for 
this first season. And while his stuff was pretty good, I really loved uh, Charlotte Brandstrom's stuff. So she did the the first episode and then one of the later episodes that I really liked. And I, I like the symbolism that she brings to the screen. I think she did a really good job with kind of the the beauty of of the world and bringing that that largeness to it that was really good and she's going to be leading uh next season and then we have two new uh directors coming in uh Santa Hamari Hamri and Luis Hopper who are going to be doing uh two episodes each so there's another eight episode run and uh, Charlotte Brandstrom's going to be rounding out that other four so it looks like she's going to get the bulk of the uh the story directing next time which should be really good did she do episode six? I believe so. I think that's the one that she. I thought was in so. Of. That was my favorite episode. So I was really excited to see her coming back. And now she's got even more episodes. Yeah, right. same. Episode six was probably my favorite of the first season. So when I heard sure. that she was connected with that, I was like, "Oh, great, awesome! More of more stuff like that." Hopefully, very cool. All right. Um, well, thank you for that bit of news we'll keep any we'll discuss any news as it comes up i'm sure but um so i guess we can move on to the night's topic um discussing tolkien's catholicism and his faith and how it impacts the legendarium and the religions of the of that world um so i just pulled together a couple kind of factoids about uh about tolkien um i did not realize he was not a cradle catholic uh meaning for those who may not know that means raised as a catholic from birth um his mother was actually his his mother's family was actually Baptist, and she was baptized when he was eight years old, um, which actually led to her family kind of cutting them off. Because um, I think by this point, his father had passed away because he was raised in South Africa and moved, and this was moved back to England at this point. Um, but he uh, and then he was received into communion uh, with the church in Christmas of 1903, from what I was reading. So. Um, we're almost 120 years, uh, uh, from that. So, uh, ways back when he actually joined the church. Um, and then when she actually passed away at a younger age, um, his, she left him in the guardianship of a priest, um, uh, an oratorian, which was the order founded by St. Philip Neri. Right. Um, and he, and the, and the priest whose name is father Francis, who some people have read other letters and his and biographies may have heard. Um, he actually facilitated him having a relationship with his mother's family. So I didn't, didn't go into too much detail on that, but I thought that was just an interesting, like, a, cause especially at a time when the, when the ecumenism wasn't as uh, big of a deal um, of a Catholic priest kind of coordinating, having someone, um, meet their family who of a different faith that may lead to them leaving the Catholic faith. So I thought that was really interesting. Um, and then his wife, Edith was also not Catholic prior to their engagement. And I think that her joining the church led to a little bit of estrangement from her family. Um, if anyone knows any more. Yeah, that I didn't know. I, I wasn't aware of that previously. So that's an interesting fact. If anyone knows more about that, feel free to discuss. These are just a little, a couple of the factoids um, that I kind of, pulled together here um and then the uh and then he did have a pretty powerful quote on the eucharist that i wanted to read and or if anyone wants to give a brief description of what that what the what the eucharist is in the catholic faith if uh some of our for some of our listeners who may not be catholic i don't know if anyone wants to 
take on the challenge of describing the source and summit of the Catholic faith in, in 50 words or less. <laughs> if anybody oh could do it. If anybody no could pressure. do it. I don't know about 50 words or less. Tolkien's yeah. more wordy than exactly. that. Exactly. No, I, I did like this because he wrote in a letter to his son that in the Blessed Sacrament, you will find romance, glory, honor, fidelity, and the true way of all your loves upon earth and more than that. And I really like the the depth to to that because it's, it's one of those things that we don't think of very often. Um, you know, we get joke. The, the the joke is that we go up and receive the wafer, right? And it's like a, a cracker. And um, that's and the outward expression of it, the physical expression of what's happening is very simplistic, right? When you just say, OK, you go up and you receive this little cracker on your tongue and you and that's it. But then the the depth of what that represents and everything that comes together to fulfill that is um, it's a it's a huge story and I and yeah to to say all of these things are there is is both true and a mystery right yeah definitely and you know as as Catholics we believe that you know at the mass the 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 bread and the wine actually become are transformed into the body and blood of Christ and. His sacrifice on Calvary is kind of represented to us. So I believe it's it, it, it really is fascinating. It's true what he says that you can find glory, honor, fidelity, because all those things were at Calvary in Christ's sacrifice for us. Because without without that, you know, we would not be able to enter full communion into with with, with God in heaven. You know, he undoes it. It's kind of like. You know, he Tolkien talks a lot about the U catastrophe and how Calvary is kind of the ultimate U catastrophe in cosmic history. You know, it's like you have the God man, Jesus Christ, put to death by his creatures. And he ends up, you know, that seems to be there's just the greatest tragedy ever, but it is completely undone with the resurrection. And so I believe Tolkien, as as a devout Catholic, was really keyed into that. I believe that the the Eucharist, Christ's sacrifice on the cross, informs a lot of what we read in the Middle Earth Legendarium in terms of his his philosophical and theological worldview. Yeah, and, and most notably for me, hearing uh, the discussion of of the Limbus, the the Elvish Waybread, which. Uh, the the Eucharist has, I believe, been called kind of a, a waybread or like a, you know, something to get you from place to place. Um, it's it's our spiritual food, even if it doesn't satisfy our our physical um, need for food. At times, it's it satisfies that deeper spiritual food, uh, deeper spiritual hunger, um, which is very cool. And yeah, we could definitely have a whole series of podcasts just on <laughs> the Eucharist. Just on Lem- we're on Lembas. <laughs> yeah, like, exactly. There's actually a point in the book, I believe it's in Return of the King, where when Sam and Frodo are walking through Mordor and all they have left to eat is the Lembas. And the narrator mentions that Lembas becomes more powerful and more sustaining the less you mingle it with other foods, which, of course, brings to mind some of the stories of the lives of the very early saints, some of whom actually, according to, you know, the the lives and reports that we had from them, lived for many years solely on the Eucharist and nothing else. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's also... um written somewhere i forget if it's the two towers or the return of the king but that it it fuels the will 
And without the Lembus, they would have long ago just lain down to die. Um, And so it's not only something that's strengthening for their bodies, but it strengthens their very souls. Um, So there's there are a ton of parallels between Lembus and the Eucharist in in Tolkien's works. It's super cool. Yeah, very cool. And if that's a fictional way bread, then imagine what the real Eucharist can do for us. So um, very cool there. Um, and then uh, we we do have something to read from one of the one of his letters about kind of as we kind of step into talking about his um, uh, Catholicism in Lord of the Rings. Um, and there there also was a I didn't have time to really put this into our notes, but there I saw that he had written a poem to the Virgin Mary um, or about the Virgin Mary that we can include in our notes. Um, it, it was a little bit longer and I didn't have a chance to really read through all the way, but um, I thought there's he in discussing the Eucharist, um, of course, we have to discuss the Virgin Mary, who, as we just passed Christmas, uh, by the time this comes out, Mary was a huge part of that. Her yes to led to everything, um, led to led to having the Eucharist altogether. So, um, but we can include that in our notes. So, just a very deeply devout and spiritual man for sure. And one other little fact I found was apparently after Vatican II. Um, which was the Second Vatican Council when they changed the Mass from having to be celebrated in Latin to being able to celebrate it in the vernacular or your whatever your native language is, like English, Spanish, whatever the case may be. He would always, in, in Mass, basically yell the responses in Latin because he was <laughs> so frustrated with the, uh, with the change. Um, so I just thought that was, uh, you know, while he's a deeply spiritual man, he also had a you know, I'm sure he didn't wasn't doing it from a humorous, but it's something we can definitely chuckle at now. So I feel like that's kind of probably for twofold reasons, because he was such a language guy um, and because he was probably kind of like a cranky old man. by that point. <laughs> <laughs> like yeah. you don't want to have to figure out an entirely different mass when you're quite a bit older. Yeah, yeah definitely true. Um, all right. And then I think we'll kind of cap this section off by we have uh, one of the letters uh, which are published in uh, various collections uh, but one was letter 142 which he was corresponding with a a Jesuit friend of his so I believe a priest um, which I can read a quick excerpt from unless someone else wanted to do the honors oh uh, yeah I I can do it which uh, go ahead how much of this did you want to read the the entire excerpt uh, it's here it's up to you i mean it's a, it's a great excerpt um okay i just kind of copied it so feel free to yeah read the whole thing and we can yeah uh letter 142 um quote i think i know exactly what you mean by the order of grace and of course by your references to our lady upon which all my own small perception of beauty both in majesty and simplicity is founded The Lord of the Rings is, of course, a fundamentally religious and Catholic work, unconsciously so at first, but consciously in the revision. That is why I have not put in or have cut out practically all references to anything like religion, to cults or practices in the imaginary world, for the religious element is absorbed into the story and the symbolism. However, that is very clumsily put. And sounds more self-important than I feel. (laughs) For for as a matter of fact, I have consciously planned very little and should chiefly be grateful for having been brought up since I was eight in a faith that has nourished me and taught me all the little that I know and that I owe to my mother, 
who clung to her conversion and died young, largely through the hardships of poverty resulting from it. Unquote. That's such a great quote. Yeah. Yeah. And I think we were all chuckling because he says very clumsily put, and that was, <laughs> and was most, like, I couldn't come up with anything better than that, you know, if I had tried. So that's um, one of the things about reading his letters is he's always saying stuff like that, like, uh, like apologizing for for not writing something down very well, and you're like, wait a second, this is the greatest thing I've ever read. <laughs> <laughs> this is so funny. Yeah, but yeah, so I, I know we. Um, that we know Lord of the Rings is not meant to be allegorical. Um, he has specifically said that, but I think this is clearly, he's like, I, I can't take all my, you know, his faith is so important to him and such a, such core to his, his writings that I think he's, he's even acknowledging, you know, we can't take it all. You can't hide it all. Um, which I, I know the rings of power show is not, you know, built as much on that kind of a foundation, but, um, so we, but at least in his works, definitely he has that foundation. And, um, you know, even though anyone can enjoy Lord of the Rings, whether you're Catholic, Christian, and of any, of other faiths or of no, no specific faith. Um, but there's always that kind of core of truth that he has in there that uh, would be, uh, that's, you can't get, you can't get away from, um, even if, even if you don't perceive it yourself, it's still in there. Well, and and the corollary there, right, is we all I, we have to mention it, and we'll probably do a show on it at some other point from this panel because I know it's been done before in the in our string of uh, of uh, Middle Earth uh, panels. But the the C.S. Lewis version of a fantasy story was meant to be an allegory, completely like from the ground up. Right. It it was directly uh, related. You could pinpoint which characters represented which parts of the religious experience. And that was a point at which these two differed greatly. That Tolkien and, and Lewis knew each other. They they talked about this issue uh, at length in many different uh, situations. So um, I, I love the fact that he wasn't trying for an allegory here, but that his sense of reality is so founded and so, so grounded in the faith that you can't escape it, even in trying to make a fantastical other world and that it really shines through in the, the the values that all of his characters espouse what heroism is what uh evil is and and i think that that's probably one of the best parts too is like that evil is not victorious like there's no situation in which evil is going to win evil will cause setbacks evil will change the course of things but it's not going to win and that's apparent throughout as dark as it does get in lord of the rings it's apparent that that this is just something that's going to alter the course of history, but not actually end it or come out on top. And Tolkien's very explicit about that in the Silmarillion. And you don't really even have to read very far into the book to get to the idea of it, because mm -hmm. even in the music of the Ainur, when the world is created, you have Melkor who's trying to mess things up and bend them to his will. And after the music ends, Iluvatar, who is like the one God creator of the of the whole world is like, I forget the exact quote, but he's basically like telling him no matter what you do, it's going to turn out that you're going to prove, but my instrument. So anything right. that you yeah. do will kind of be folded into my will. And like, there's no escaping the will of Iluvatar in, in this works, um, which can be kind of scary, I guess, if you're, if you're trying to, but it's also very comforting if you're not. Yeah. And it, I think that also ties into the idea of, 
uh, that Tolkien was big on a sub creation in that Eru Iluvatar was the creator and everyone else was a sub creator from the Ainur down to, you know, the hobbits there. Everyone is a mm-hmm. sub creator under Iluvatar. And I think Tolkien envisioned himself as a sub creator of this world, but under the, you know, under the, the, the true creation of, of, um, of God. So. Oh yeah. I definitely think that he put a lot of himself and his philosophy behind that as a writer in the story of Aule creating the dwarves in the Silmarillion, because when Eru Iluvatar confronts Aule and says, you, you, did you think you could create these, you know, in, in my despite or something like that? And of course, Iluvatar knows that Aule has good intentions, but he wants to hear it from him. And Aule says, you know, he, he says something to the effect of, um, when a child imitates the deeds of his father, it's not meant to be an insult. Mm-hmm. So it's mm-hmm. like all of us as sub creators are imitating the deeds of our father, of, of God, of the, the Godhead, the creator of the universe. We as sub creators made in his image imitate him in we, we can't create things out of nothing, but we can take things in this material world and recombine them and form them into new things. And of course, that's what Aule is all about. And he he. He says to Iluvatar, you know, he's like, I offer these these works of my hands to you. But, you know, if 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 you reject them, that's fine. I'm fine with that. In fact, why why don't I just end my presumption and destroy them myself? And like he almost, you know, destroys the dwarves and and he's 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 going to weep. He's weeping while he does it. But then Iluvatar says, stop, I am blessing your creation i'm adopting the dwarves as kind of my as the not the children of my choice who are elves and men but the children of my adoption and i just found that that story about Aule creating the dwarves and his interactions with iluvatar is so moving and so powerful i always get i i I always feel you know very emotional reading that story as someone who is of a creative bent and likes to create stories and stuff like that. I've always identified with Aule in that tale. Very cool. Well, I think that kind of, we've kind of been touching on it, but I guess we can kind of formally move into discussing the religions of the world of Arda, which um, to clarify for those who may not know, Arda is the world and Middle Earth is actually a continent in the world. So while we are the Secrets of Middle Earth podcast, we we do discuss other uh, <laughs> other continents <laughs> and places in the world. Um, so I think, yeah, as we've discussed, and as you, as as some our listeners may know, when we when the Rings of Power starts, that's kind of taking place in between some of the big sections of the Legendarium, um, as the the deity, the creator god of of Arda of, I think it's actually Ea is creation. I could be wrong in there, but I think Ea is actually the word for creation itself. Um, so you have Eru and you have Ea as his creation. Um, so Eru exists eternally, just like we as Catholics believe that, that God and the Trinity existed, exists eternally. And he created the Ainur, which were the uh, groups of, which were the Valar and the Maiar. So kind of the angelic, uh, demigod type of spirits. So um, there were seven Valar 
and there were uh, many more Maiar that were that were created. I believe uh, he created both. I'm I, I could be wrong. I don't. Or did the Valar create the Maiar uh, as part of the song? No, I they, believe they were all, all together. Yeah. Okay, yeah, they were all together. Okay. Yeah, they and, became Valar and Maiar when they came down into the world. Okay, gotcha. Okay, very cool. And um and yeah, as we discussed the the I love the creation of the just the the myth it's of creation that he wrote. It's it's a song, and you can yeah. kind of see that you can look up stuff online about the in the credits, the opening credits to Rings of Power, how the music starts off of kind of one one harmony, and then as he, as a different as the Valor and Ainor come in, they or the, as Ainor come in, that music changes, and then as Melkor decides to go in and, and do things his own way, you kind of get that discord. And there's, you can look up entire kind of descriptions about that, but, but that's how the world was created is, was the songs of the Ainur um, brought Arda into creation. Um, and I love how Lewis kind of mirrors this in the Chronicles of Narnia, mm-hmm. where in the Magician's Nephew, which is the earliest in the Narnia timeline, Aslan creates narnia by singing it into existence so both arda and narnia these two great fantasy realms are created via song via an act of speech which is so biblical right because we know that in um in genesis god speaks the world into existence you know it's an act of intelligibility an act of speech and so that's kind of mirrored in this you know, the, the, the middle or, or Arda and, you know, and Narnia both being created by song. Yeah. Very cool. Oh, you have something, Thomas? Well, I was going to say, I like the, I like the fact that, um, that both of these approach creation as a musical process rather than a violent process. Mm. And so the, mm. there's nothing explosive about it. There's nothing, uh, you know, collapsing or you know, we, we have a very scientific view of the world that we know that things kind of co- collapse together and, and there's lots of bangs involved in the creation of the universe <laughs> but to take a step back from the scientific portion of it and to think about this the nature of god as speaking it into existence or singing it into existence kind of lovingly crafting it and yes there are you know, unexpected and explosive things that happen in music, but there is an overall sense of it coming together in a peaceful way that moves through the whole of creation. I love that, uh, that image being brought together here. And then as you walk through the legendary, and once you, once you've got that framework set up and you walk through the story as it's happening, all of the scary parts and the the parts where you're really in the weeds and things are not looking good for the heroes. Those are those moments of tension in the music that must resolve eventually. And that's such a beautiful way to look at the story and how it's flowing. Yeah. I, I just love the music of the Ainur. In fact, I believe on uh, I've, I've talked about this uh, not on this show, but with uh, one of our other SQPN uh, panelists, Mike Creevy, on his podcast, The Gracious Guest Show, we, we we talked about Tolkien on one of the episodes and we touched on the music of the Ainur and we both agreed that like Tolkien was somehow tapping into something true here that if, you know, because we know um, the book of Genesis is steeped in a lot of allegorical and poetic language. 
but that if 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 there was like a a literal truth of how creation happened, it might be very similar to the music of the Ainur. <laughs> it just mm-hmm. seems true somehow. I I believe that. I believe Tolkien was tapping into something true and right about the nature of the universe, but the nature of creation, like like you were saying, Thomas, how it's an an unfolding. You know, it, it's not a violent process. It's unfolding. It's ordered. And there's there's this kind of peaceful, you know, background to it of, of song, of speech. There's a beauty woven into the very fabric of creation. And I just think that that's that that just has to be true on on some level. Very cool. Well said. Um, yeah, definitely. The me- yeah, it's just a, if you've never read uh, the. The, the Silmarillion, but especially the beginning part, which is the Aino Lindale, where this this is all taking place. And it's, it's actually a very short, relatively short section compared to the rest. And but it's very it, it is a little more dense, but it, it is just a beautiful, um, you know, it's poetry. It's not just. Yeah, it, it, you, that's one way to approach the Silmarillion is it, it's not a novel. It's a collection of of stories and poetry, um, but very cool. And, and yeah, just to kind of touch on the. The, the Valar and the Maiar, there were the set, there were the seven Valar of which, you know, Melkor was kind of the, you know, he was kind of the, the first among, he was kind of the Lucifer, you know, to compare it to our, our Christian tradition of the kind of the first created being um, who eventually saw himself as uh, equal to the creator, uh, which led to his downfall. And, um, you know, he, if we ever talk about the Silmarillion in more detail, we can definitely discuss what happens to Melkor, but uh, it doesn't end well for him. <laughs> say. To put um, it lightly. Yeah. And so uh, just to kind of briefly go through he, after the world is created and um, eventually the, uh, the, the Valar and the Maiar go and dwell on the continent of Amman, which is to the far West of the rest of the world. Um, and at this point, the, the the Earth is flat, or the Arda yeah. is flat. It is not a sphere, so um, <laughs> flat uh, Middle Earth society. Exactly. Yeah. That's right. <laughs> so uh, they are from the far west, and then the Middle Earth and other places are are in, toward the east. And the eventually the elves are created and awaken in the far, I believe, in the far east of Middle Earth. Like, if, if I'm wrong on that, please uh, correct me. But and then they eventually, as they awaken and uh, travel, they eventually travel to Amon and to meet the Valar. And I, I think it's been a while since I've read the film Aurelian, but I believe one of the Valar kind of visits them or, or the Maiar visit them and kind of say, hey, come with us to uh, to our home and to kind of dwell with us, which is uh, and then. And not all the Valar agree. I, I believe true. Olmo uh, is against it. He's like, no, you should just leave them alone. Like, but uh, Orome, right. the huntsman, is like, no, we should bring them to Valinor for their safekeeping. It's that that's such an interesting point that I feel like we could talk about for a long time, because the way I see it, if they were put there and that's where they awoke, awakened, uh, like that isn't that where they're supposed to be and so for them to immediately be like let's bring them over to valinor like i don't know how i feel about that but that's a whole nother topic <laughs> yeah because 
because Eru Luvatar, after he after the Arda is created, he kind of is, is steps away. So mm-hmm. that is kind of an area where I think our the Christian tradition kind of differs in that in in this world it, uh, he eventually comes back in a in a very big way um, prior to the uh, events of Rings of Power, but um, or well toward the end of Rings of Power, I guess. Um, yeah, I yeah. hope we get to see that <laughs> exactly. Um, but so he kind of steps away, whereas in our world, our faith, obviously God is, is very present among us and with us. Um, yeah, he kind of makes the Valar his viceroys in a way. He gives them sort of stewardship over the world, kind of in almost in the way how in Genesis he gives mankind stewardship over the world. You know, he's like have dominion over the earth and all the other creatures in whereas in Middle Earth. It's the Valar, these angelic beings who are the stewards of the earth. Yeah, and and the, yeah, and the, and and as the elves, like, so we're kind of glossing over a lot here because because the, there's so yeah, much. Yeah, we're, we're, we're not we're not recapping the entire civil Yeah, right I don't now, think it's but, possible. <laughs> um, but uh, some of the Val, some of the elves, they stay with the Valar, and others uh, in Amon in the continent in Valinor, where and since some elves kind of return to to Middle Earth. And um, and then at that point as well, the I, I know I, we we touched on dwarves on the the creation right. of the dwarves, which are Aule's creation, who was kind of the the stereotypical um, or archetypal like Smith type of character, uh, Smith type of deity, and he he created the dwarves out of out of the rock basically, and kind of gave them a sort of half life, but they were more like automatons than anything, and didn't really have that that created that, that I believe a Tolkien call, I believe it was Fea, the kind of that spirit that really makes them alive. And so as uh, we discussed, as Thomas discussed the, he basically said, I'll, I'll, I'll smash these creations. If you don't like them, if you don't like them, my dad is, <laughs> if you, but uh, of course, I'll Eru, destroy my macaroni art. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> they almost remind me of like video game characters where they only move when you're, when you're moving them. And if you set the controller right. down and leave, they just stand still. It's like, that's kind of how yeah. they were. Mm-hmm. Right. And then of course, but of course, Eru was merciful and said, no, no, I will. He, they're, they were, they're not my creation, but they are my, adopted children since you as we mentioned he kind of subcreated the dwarves and but he did put them to sleep for a while um because he i believe the men awoke before the dwarves um in the definitely in the, the elves yeah because right, the, the elves, elves have okay, to have priority yeah, elves yeah right and so i think it's yeah he he didn't want the children of Aule to awaken before the children of Iluvatar. Mm-hmm. right and so just kind of a, a we've kind of touched on the, we haven't really discussed, I guess the religious practices of these two uh, kindreds, but the elves, um, you know, they, they were kind of remaining with some of them remained with their gods and just kind of all hung out together and were uh, the light of the trees, which the Valar um, made grow for uh, was kind of a source of, of happiness and almost kind of drunkenness that they would, they basically were, were getting, you know, getting kind of drunk off the power of these trees and almost in a state of kind of bliss from these tree from just the light of the trees, which was why when, uh, as we kind of saw in the rings of power opening, when they were destroyed was such a, such a loss to the world and was the loss of light, um, uh, to the world. Um, so they're, the, the elves kind of their religions obviously have kind of varied a little bit, um, or kind of their practices. And then the dwarves were, we know were kind of 
followers of Aule, um, which in the show, uh, Duran said Aule's beard. So he was referring to kind of <laughs> our. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I was a little this disappointed. We, we we never heard the Kuzdul name for Aule, Mahal. I would have liked to have heard that in the Rings of Power. I have a feeling they're going to branch off into that a little more as they get into the, the more dwarf centric show. That'll be. That'll probably come up a lot more. I was going to say, I have a theory that we're going to get to meet Aule, and that's why they keep Ooh. name dropping him because they want us to be ready. Mm. Oh, I think wow. we're going to see him next season. Or at least see like his forge. Maybe we'll see like the back of his head. Oh, very nice. <laughs> that's just my theory. Well, and because he was like the original, like Sauron used to be his apprentice when he was mm-hmm. Myron mm-hmm. in Valinor. So, yeah, you're right. If we see his origin in Valinor, we should see him and, you know, Kurunir and Feanor and maybe all a bunch of other. Al- and man, Aule has bad luck with students. <laughs> I know. <laughs> this poor guy. He cares too much. That's that's his thing, right? It's like, yeah. he, um, he does. You know, he loves too much. Yeah. I feel like we should do an episode where we just talk about the Valar. That would be really fun. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, yeah. I, I believe that's on our list, on our our yeah. document. Nice. Yeah, awesome. we're, we're kind of touching on that now. But yeah, and so as far, I don't know if anyone knows any, any kind of any more before we kind of jump to the men, which I think there's kind of the most we know about them, at least from the main works. But does anyone have any, uh, anything you want to discuss on Elvish religion per se or Dwarvish religion? It's, it's kind of different than our version of than you know the real world version of religion where we we don't we for the most part even those of us who have a faith of of any sort we don't we haven't seen our our god in person in in the sense of we see you know we see our god walking down the street um whereas the elves they some of them you know elves are immortals and some of them have lived with the valar since <laughs> before time was even counted on in the in arda yeah, I think one of the, one of the ways to look at it too is that the um, it's really similar as an analogy, and I know Tolkien would roll it over in his grave when I say this, <laughs> um, but but it's similar in an analogy to like you know, Luvatar uh, created, but all of these instruments that he that were part of his song are still there. So they're like the powers and principalities, almost the same way right. that that God has created our world, but then the the things that run our world the the natural order of things uh he has set in motion and those are the things that he's left kind of in charge and and we don't interact with them and that's that's i think that the difference from our perspective is that we don't directly get a chance to talk to uh the concept of economics or uh you know the the rising and setting of the sun uh we don't get to have an interaction with those things in, in a very physical verbal way Whereas the elves do, the elves get to go and speak to the master craftsman, the the concept, you know, I, I always, the, the concept of craft embodied. And so that's, it's such an interesting relationship that they have. And then you have the men as they come up later, don't get to have that interaction as much, uh, you know, and they're so short lived that it's unlikely that they'll ever see outside of their own small little area that they're born in and that i think is kind of the difficulty that the men have and then also the blessing that the men have which is something we'll talk about i'm sure as we go through because the elves consider the men very lucky not to have 
that same exposure to these to these things. And I think it it shows a little bit in the fact that they the elves can tend to be a little jaded about these things in mm. their own way. And um, that's one of the one of the faults that we see as the elves go through is the mistakes that they make are big mistakes and and very bold mistakes. But that's because they are constantly in contact with these very big and bold ideas. Yeah. And the way the elves think about the afterlife of men is very interesting because they're mm-hmm. they call death the gift of men. Whereas men only see death as a curse. But if you look at it from the elves perspective, because, okay, unless they're slain, elves don't die naturally. They rarely get sick and they don't die of old age. And even when they are slain, they just go to the halls of Mandos for a period before being re-embodied. They never leave and go to a true afterlife. They're functionally immortal. And they look at men and they're like, you get to leave. <laughs> you guys right. are lucky. You, you get to leave this world of sorrow and tragedy and go to be with Iluvatar. We don't get that un- until the eschaton, you know, until the end of Arda. So it, it's interesting, though, the way elves see men as kind of the beneficiaries of this gift, whereas men, especially as, as shown with the Numenorians, are envious of the elves for their immortality within the world. I just mm-hmm. think that that's an interest. The, the, the whole concept of the different races having different destinies and different afterlives is just really fascinating. Yeah. And to kind of touch on, uh, as we kind of touch on the afterlifes of, of the elves, the, the dwarves also, they're mortal. However, it's kind of said that they are, they they will go to the halls of Mandos, which, as we mentioned, are kind of a a realm of or maybe a physical place where the the deceased elves and some men go, or or do all all men maybe go there? All but men go there, but then they they, don't, they leave and right. they depart for Iluvatar. Yeah, except for an occasional reincarnation, um, but that's a very rare occurrence. But the dwarves are also set apart; they they're in halls set apart in the halls of Mandos, so we don't really know what happens to them if they are kind of do they kind of go go with to Iluvatar like the men do are they kind of um you know are they reincarnated in any way uh, i don't know if you guys had any thoughts i was kind of thinking like i wonder if they kind of become part of the rock the kind of the foundations of the world and that's kind of that would be very dwarvish of like you come yeah. from the rock into the <laughs> rock you all return which as we're we're getting close to we're the Lent season is coming up where you say we're from dust you are made and from dust you shall return on Ash Wednesday. So I wonder if kind of the dwarves, it's kind of an honor to kind of return back to the rock um, that they're made from. I don't know if, you know, if, for y'all who have may have read through the letters or, or the his, the, the other works that are outside of the Silmarillion. I don't know if you have any, if there's any, any discussion on that that you would like to mention here. I read somewhere that the elves believe that the dwarves don't have immortal souls, but that they return to rock when they die, but that that's not necessarily what the dwarves believe about themselves. And that apparently the dwarves keep a lot of that secret. They don't put it abroad, really, what they believe. I know certain dwarves like Durin keeps getting reincarnated, or at least that's what the dwarves 
believe about Durin. And apparently they also believe that at the end of Arda, they are supposed to help Aule fashion a new Arda after Mm -hmm. it's been destroyed finally by Morgoth, that they will be involved in kind of the creation of a new heaven and a new earth. So yeah, the, the the dwarves have. I wish we knew more about it, but since they're so secretive, they don't really tell us yeah. a whole lot. <laughs> well, and and that's that's the thing. We don't even know, honestly, where dwarven children come from. Like that's not that that is a thing that is explicitly sort of left out of hmm. the discussion. Like like we we assume we know where men come from. Uh, we more or less know where elves come from because there's a lot of discussion about genealogies but even when you talk about the genealogies of dwarves it's not as much of like a this pair begat this pair and so on and so forth it's more of a this is the son of this person and a lot of times it's almost like it's just that that same person over again (laughs) especially with the way they act when they're the younger version of themselves so it's really, I don't know, it's, dwarves are weird, man. <laughs> <laughs> I think we can all agree on that. <laughs> but but I, it's, it's an effect, it's an effect of the language too, right? Because the, what Tolkien wanted to do was make a language that had a history and that was elvish, not dwarvish. Dwarvish was kind of a, a side effect of the world that he was creating. And he had all these words that he wanted to use for this other group of people and then they are almost kind of half-baked <laughs> and um <laughs> and, 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 you know yeah. i, I don't want to say that because it's, it's so fully fledged out there's like so much lore there but at the same time compared to everything else that tolkien built the dwarves are really just not complete in my but, but even in the world they are because they were mm-hmm. not created directly by iluvatar they're crafted right. by Aulay, so they're almost literally kind of half-baked and sort of, you know, Iluvatar finishes it off by giving them souls. But yeah, it's just... (laughs) Yeah, and and like going back to the letter 142 we discussed where he says, I've consciously planned very little. And I mean, he may have been more referring to the Lord of the Rings and the Silmarillion was in various stages at that point. But yeah, you can definitely tell uh, that he... It's it's not like a lot of fantasy now where like you have very strict rules that are kind of set there's a lot of kind of and especially this the Silmarillion being such a composition there's going to be different stages and um but I I was going to say I've been watching a lot of Last Kingdom on Netflix to kind of fill that void of kind of a semi-fantasy and so I was thinking I was kind of thinking I wonder if the dwarves kind of have like a Valhalla type of that's what they kind of see halls Mm. of feasting and fighting interesting um (laughs) feasting and fighting for eternity and and but I I think what you said about the creating of kind of being there to, to create a new Arda at the end of the current Arda is that's pretty, that's really cool. Yeah. Whole thing is very cool. Um, Mm -hmm. Well, so we've discussed the elves and the dwarves. Um, I think we, uh, we can now kind of move to discussing the men who were, we probably know the most about, I would say, aside from the elves in terms of the various practices, which there were so many different, different peoples, uh, different, peoples of men to for lack of a better term there were there were kind of the the ones that were more elvish and were descended from elves um and there were the ones that were kind of more in the far east that were really untouched by the you know knowledge of the elves and knowledge of the kind of the the valar so um i i think we it's kind of the i've kind of liked the idea of men becoming 
kind of the point of men is to become the masters of Arda, which if we, as we've discussed, the earth we're living in now is middle is Arda just far in the future. And this, the stories of the legendarium are kind of in the past, but um, so I think kind of the, the idea of men becoming ennobled to become the masters, which kind of culminate in Aragorn in his line um, being descended from even a, uh, a Maya because one of his ancestors married an elf. Well, one of his ancestors was a Maya who married an elf and right. bore, and then mm-hmm. the daughter of that union was Luthien, who Baron married to eventually their line became, uh, became the line of Aragorn. I'm not um, sure how very... procreating with a Maiar works, but it's cool. <laughs> I, I like the idea, but I just don't know how that works. <laughs> I think there's some definitely divine uh, inspiration there, because if you read the Silmarillion uh, in that section, uh, Melian was the was the Maya, and she's telling her husband stuff all the time, and he's just not listening. Thingol uh, was her husband. Thingol <laughs> was just kind of... Not as thick-headed, not as kind of boneheaded as Fanor and others were, but definitely there were times where he, things could have been different if he had listened to his wife, who was, you know, a, a deity, so. Right, like he um, literally married one of the Maiar and you don't listen to her. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, but yeah, so kind of the noblest men, they, they were, they stood with the elves in the War of Wrath and stood with the Valar and received Numenor as kind of a gift. And of course, the 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 uh, men of Gondor descended from Numenor. So they kind of have that line of practice and you can kind of see their, their symbols and like their, the tree of the white tree, which right. was, and it goes back to the trees of uh, the two trees of Valinor. Um, and I, I hope we get to see some of the, the tree action in the show of, because <laughs> the, because the tree, the tree in Gondor uh, was a seedling of a tree that was of the tree we see in Numenor that we saw kind of, flowering in the show um, tolkien takes so much time to give us a genealogy of a tree and it's great right. <laughs> yeah i think if we don't see that i will be very surprised because the seal door plays a pretty big role when it comes yes. to the tree mm-hmm. and the tree is pretty important to the fall of numenor so if we don't get that that'll be another moment where i'm kind of scratching my head <laughs> it's interesting i think out of all the men I think we know the most about Numenorean religious practice. I believe it's described mm-hmm. briefly mm-hmm. in the Silmarillion and I think also in the Unfinished Tales, because in the middle of Numenor, you have the sacred mountain, the Menel Tarma. And there's mm-hmm. apparently three times during the year in which the king and all his attendants and the people ascend the mountain, almost like Moses ascending Sinai, you know, and then they ascend this mountain where everyone is completely silent except the king who offers prayers to Iluvatar three times a year. And of course, we know that the Numenorians end up completely doing a, a 180, you know, <laughs> face turn and go from worshiping Iluvatar to worshiping Morgoth. And they actually have a temple where they sacrifice people. But yeah, it, it's interesting that of, out of all the men, we, we know the most about the cultic practices of the Numenorians, and not mm-hmm. so much about other people. Yeah, and, and we even can kind of see that callback to that in uh, the Two Towers. And I believe it's the chapter Window of the West when Frodo and Sam are taken by Faramir's, uh, by his, his, uh, his men. Before they're, they have a meal, they're kind of, 
they look to the west. Um, oh, that's so cool! As kind yeah. of a, they, I, I, I could, I don't have the quote in front of you, but it's something along the lines of we, we look to, look to our former home westerness and elven home of old, um, kind of looking to the the their past and also to the place they can never go of of uh, of Amon where the Valar and the elves will eventually all return to. So, yeah, and it's crazy because that's really like the very last remnant of this fully built up religion that Numenor did have. And then you get to the end of the Lord of the Rings and like, that's all that's left. So it's kind of cool and very sad seeing the way that it's deteriorated and been lost over the years. Yeah. And so, and there's varying other um, practices among different peoples of, um, you know, the Eastern, as we kind of saw in the show, some of the people uh, who were, fought for uh for morgoth in the war they kind of were they essentially worshipped him as their god so he was he kind of had twisted their belief and they grew up and not all of them did but we saw um, i believe waldrig was the character who kind of was the had was the leader of that kind of cult of morgoth um so there's yeah and even and it's funny because even at that point even like in in our in our catholic faith um, Morgoth had already lost at that point and was gone and, right. and just right. never coming back. So that's, you know, you're kind of worshiping a, uh, worshiping a, 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 some, a thing or that's not even there anymore, but his, obviously his, um, you know, his, the taint is st- of Morgoth is still there and all the Maiar he corrupted and all, which mm-hmm. uh, of course of chief, his chief Lieutenant was Sauron. So we'll, it'll be interesting to see in the show kind of how that develops and, um, yeah, I don't know if we want to get into too many spoilers for the Silmarillion and the Akalabeth. Uh, maybe at some <laughs> yeah. point we can have a kind of a, a spoiler discussion for those who don't want to know anything about the what the show might bring. But um, yeah, I'm interested too to see in the show kind of because it looks like some of our characters of uh, Nori and um, and the Meteor Man going to the east, so we could see some you know, Eastern, maybe some of these Eastern religions and peoples that we don't know much about. Um, yeah, I am really interested in that because they have a blank canvas to play on with that. And so I am really, really fascinated to see where they go with that storyline. Yeah, that'll be, it, it, it's, it, it's interesting to see where they are going to, uh, where they're going to take some of this, because I, I think the interesting part of Tolkien's leaving us with these, uh, with the cultures that he created is that they are not largely religious cultures. Mm. Um, they're very, they are intrinsically valued cultures. They have a lot of history. They're, they're very intent on the, the, the ancestry and the history of what they are, but they're not there. There aren't churches built in uh, Tolkien's world. And so it's kind of interesting to see that played out because it has, it has a twofold kind of, uh, issue in in the way it's presented is one that you have a completely agnostic show but in the other it's it's so steeped in the values of catholicism that you can't escape those values and that's i love that aspect of it because you can hand uh lord of the rings to someone who is very anti-catholic and they can still read it and get all of the the wealth of uh the story out of it but also the values that are uh that are passed through it and you know then to have to open the discussion from that point like well you know 
Tolga was Catholic. And, and uh, that's yeah. why a lot of this stuff is the way it is. I used to do that in college with people because I, I had a right. lot of friends who were atheists and agnostic. I even had neo-pagan friends. And we would talk about the Lord of the Rings and I'd be like, yeah, you know, he was he was Catholic and there's all this Catholic imagery and stuff. And I'd explain mm-hmm. some of the symbolism and they'd be like, really? <laughs> like, <laughs> it, it's like with, with us, we're as practicing Catholics, we're clued into a lot of this stuff. Mm-hmm. But with a lot of people who aren't, you know, that they, they may not pick up on a lot of this kind of deep, rich symbolism unless they're told. And it becomes kind of a discussion point, a way in of almost like you know, evangelizing through culture with people, which is, you know, you know, Tolkien didn't really intend for the book to be, you know, an apologetics tool or anything like that. But at the same time, it still allows you to open up these discussions with people about Tolkien's faith in kind of a non-threatening, you know, non-sectarian kind of way. Very cool. Well, unless y'all had anything else to say about um, any of the religions of men, um, I thought we could briefly have a little fun chat about the Hobbit afterlife and what we think that might be. (laughs) Um, Because as far as I know, there's no really any kind of Hobbit religion or or anything. Um, And if anyone knows anything about it, you know, (laughs) but I think I think they're just kind of the, the more simple folk that they're they're kind of the. You know, they kind of they don't worship the earth, but they're kind of that's kind of their religion is kind of living is is working the earth and being in kind of more communion with the earth than than some uh, some of the other races, Um, because the Shire is kind of that more idyllic countryside. Um, But just if anyone has any you know fun thoughts about what the the Hobbit afterlife might be, I I think, of course, it would involve some uh, some some good good food and good drink and um, <laughs> you know i'm i think just by na- by their nature of being created being kind of descended from men they probably are have a place in in mandos and you know maybe they go they're part of the gift they receive the gift of men as well um but if anyone had any anything to say on that yeah i tend to go with the thought that they are um they have the same fate as men and of course, we know they, at least they seem two to be less hobbits. concerned about it. Yeah, that's true. Two. That yeah. So that's, that's my two sits on it. <laughs> less concerned about. Yeah, death it, in general. it's not very. It's not very um, descri- well described in the book. He doesn't really get to it. Yeah. Um, yeah, and one kind of as as we discussed the the great Tom Bombadil the last time, there was kind of a <laughs> quote that I, that was running through my mind with this, which. In the films, it's uh, it's a true it's Pippin and Gandalf talking at the Battle of um, Pelennor Fields. So it's at the the last book, but in the in the novels, it's actually in the first book when they're leaving, um, or after they've I believe it's when they've already left Tom Bombadil and kind of that slice of of pure Arda of un you know untainted Arda. Um, but the I'll just read this this brief quote here of um, Frodo heard a sweet singing running in his mind a song that seemed to come like a pale light behind a gray rain curtain and growing stronger to turn the veil all to glass and silver until at last it was rolled back and a far green country opened before him under a swift sunrise, which I, I think is that. kind of a, yeah, just, yeah, I, I love that moment in the quote. films. Yeah. I love that in the films. And I think it just, it, it sounds like it's kind of we're referring to, to Valinor kind of that, that you know pure like i said kind of that slice of uh that that piece of heaven on earth and it's foreshadowing right because 
uh, Frodo is one of the two hobbits we know of who gets to spend the rest of his mortal days in Valinor. Mm-hmm. Which is funny, because if hobbits are an offshoot of men, I, I don't know of any men who have done that. Maybe two or, right? Although that's ambiguous. But <laughs> yeah, I don't think we know of for certain any men who have gotten to spend their mortal days in Valinor, except for two hobbits, Bilbo and Frodo. Mm-hmm. So there's right. some interesting foreshadowing with that quote in fellowship foreshadowing something that won't get payoff until the very end of return of the king. Yeah, definitely. Um, and, and I, I wasn't on the very first episode of the show, but when the, the scene of, uh, when Galadriel was being sent ship back to Valinor and you kind of like this quote was running through my mind when you, like you literally see the clouds like open up yeah. And, yeah. and you see the, like the light pouring out and, and the, you hear the song and, um, just I love the way they did that. Yeah, very powerful. It's yeah. almost like baptismal. And then, of course, mm-hmm. she because they they're even switching. They're kind of stripping their previous garments to kind of that pure white. And they have to they take her dagger from her as like, you know, you're leaving this life and the, the woes behind. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, yeah, that's wow. I hadn't thought of that. I'm going to have to watch that scene yeah. again. It's like yeah, her fight if, is over and she's kind of leaving it behind. Yeah. But then it doesn't happen. Yeah. But then she then she has a has an actual baptism and jumps in the water. <laughs> uh, That's and right. The, and then meets the devil in her swim. Good thing she took that dagger. Right. Good yeah. thing she took that dagger because you know without it, where would we be? Exactly. Where would we be? Yeah. Um, so, and then just I I don't know if we wanted to briefly touch on I the kind of the we've talked about the kind of the good people for the most part, um, but there's also kind of that the dark of uh, uh, the world and, you know, Melkor, as we said, became Morgoth, which his name was Melkor, but then they uh, believe it was, was it the elves or the Valar who named him Morgoth, the dark enemy of the I world? I think it was Feanor himself, okay, yeah, right? right? Oh. Yeah. Okay. When yeah, he so was, he... he was pretty mad after his Silmarils got <laughs> stolen. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So we kind of have the, the other, the flip side of, of what we've discussed of kind of these, these good races that were, but they, we have the, we have Melkor and his, or Morgoth and his subsequent followers of the Maya, like Sauron and the Balrogs and, um, and Ungoliant, uh, the spider who would have been a descendant of, or an ancestor of Shelob. Um, mm-hmm. and then, uh, which as, as a side note, the Ungoliants, uh, th- what we know about her basically is that she's she has a hunger for light, which is why she kills one of the reasons she kills the trees with, with Melkor. And, but it's, it's, she has a hunger that can be satisfied. So she's basically eternally hungry and will never, uh, <laughs> will never be satisfied. So that's kind of a clue of Tolkien's like, you know, the bad you're, you're going to be hungry. It's going to be a lack. It's yeah. Gonna be, and it, mm-hmm. Which is, it, I mean, that's basically what sin is. is it's a, it's, it means without, or it's a, you know, it's a lack of good. So you have these, these create these, you know, even people who knew who would have known Eru Luvatar, like actually literally known him. Um, and they still turned away. So. And look at the ring rates too. They like become nothing. You know, mm-hmm. they, yeah. they, they, they're they without, they fade away into like, they don't have bodies anymore. They're just sort of, although they can wear clothes. Which is, I guess you're just not supposed to think about it too much, but they, they have like, <laughs> they're bodiless spirits and, you know, they can't be seen. Yeah, there's a lot of interesting symbolism there. 
So I have a quote from letter 183 that I think would be kind of interesting for this discussion. It's honestly, I think people should read this whole letter if they have the letters of J.R.R. Tolkien. So I don't want to read too much, but he starts talking about absolute evil. He says, in my story, I do not deal in absolute evil. I do not think there is such a thing since that is zero. I do not think that at any rate that rational being that any rational being is wholly evil. Satan fell. In my myth, Morgoth fell before creation of the physical world. In my story, Sauron represents as near an approach to the holy evil will as is possible. Then he goes on for, for quite some time. He also talks about the religion of Numenor. Um, so it's a really cool letter. People should check it out. And I don't want to read the whole thing, but um, I thought it was kind of relevant. This, and this is one of the areas where I liked what they did with the Sauron that we see in the show, where he thinks he's doing right. He, he, his evil is him wanting to fix things. And, um, you know, you mentioned Ungoliath and the, the, the hunger, uh, and, and Melkor with the sense of wanting to control and the constant, uh, kind of theme is this inward focus rather than this outward focus, right? Where you've, you've gone from, uh, because we all experience want, we all experience uh, a lack of something and the issue is when we try and and focus on that lack and focus on fulfilling that lack ourselves or trying to embrace that lack and, and figuring out how to fix it that's when problems start whereas if we embrace that lack and know everyone else has it it, it is a universal uh state of existence is to, to not have to not be complete but then to settle into that without a desire to fulfill it ourselves. Right. And that brings us back to the creator where there's gotta be a reason for this and, and just being open to that, to that movement. Uh, that that's where the evil good divide is, right. Is I don't have all the answers. You know, that, that's one of the beautiful things about um, Aragorn is that he doesn't, he doesn't feel like he, has a claim to his his rightful place as king until he's kind of walked through all of the things that he needs to do he knows that there is a a moment that will be fulfilled and that time will come he doesn't just walk into gondor and say i'm the king that's it give me the give me the crown you know um but he also doesn't know what that moment's going to be because and and he's he's just along in a lot of ways he's along for the ride and he's he's kind of just following the the path that is laid before him in faith really and that's the beautiful thing about his character yeah he says at one point by the labor and valor of many i have come into my inheritance right Mm -hmm. and and that's that's i think the, the that's the character that that tolkien wants us to espouse is that that character that doesn't focus on what we're missing, but focuses on the journey that we take to to get to the end. Whether we find what it is that we're we feel like we're missing or not, we follow that journey through to the end. And um, you see that consistently his evil characters are those characters that uh, stray from that path and become obsessed with fulfilling that that thing that they're missing power or the hunger and that in the case of, uh, or, you know, like with, um, with Smeagol, when he gets the ring, it's that he has a possession and, and before he has that possession, he has nothing. And it's now suddenly he has this thing that's his, that he's willing to kill for. 
and um and cares so much about that it actually transmutes the person or the, the hobbit that he is into golem and with you know how how much the show you know focused on sauron in terms of like you know not seeing himself as evil but being a benefactor and he he tries to convince galadriel of it i wonder if anyone on youtube has done one of those montage music videos of halbrand sauron uh to the rolling stones sympathy for the devil (laughs) oh i'm sure yeah (laughs) going to look this up now tolkien actually talks about that in that in the letter that i referred to earlier kind of um like how he desired to well i can just read it it's right in front of me he said he had gone the way of all tyrants beginning well at least on the level that while desiring to order all things according to his own wisdom he still at first considered the economic well-being of other inhabitants of the earth but he went further than human tyrants in pride and the lust for domination being an origin and immort being an origin an immortal angelic spirit so he did. He started out with with good intentions, but then he just went so much farther than um, than kind of what he should have done. Yeah, and the and he and what sets him apart from uh, is between you know, what sets you know like Melkor apart from Ale is that Ale turned back to Iluvatar and Melkor did not. And even mm-hmm. though he returned, you know he he returned to the Valar to face judgment and was in prison for a while. He still eventually left that he, he didn't kind of ultimately accept the, their judgment and Sauron never returned to accept kind of the judgment of the Valar, which I think we discussed in a, a couple episodes ago, kind of about the, can the orcs be, you know, are they truly evil and can they be redeemed? And kind of the conclusion was, it's not up to, men or elves it would be up to the valar and they're never going to be they're never going to go do it so it's like they have the opportunity but they're never going to take it Mm. Um, and you know like sauron never you know he kind of eventually as we might see becomes imprisoned but it's really to farther his own end it's not as a it's he's not he's not truly contrite he's Mm -hmm. it's you know it's not like he's he's uh, and even in, in the earlier parts of the story he's more afraid of the punishment than being, you know, I think I mentioned previously, you know, confession is not about you're you did something bad and you have to, you know, you have to confess because it's a punishment. No, it's to return ourselves to the state of, you know, what we should be. Um, yeah, there's so much you could go go on about with with that story. Yeah. And as um, we kind of get uh, I think we're kind of wrapping up this section, I, I don't know if anyone has any other comments on, uh, I mean, kind of the religion of the orcs, I think is just kind of one of based on, on fear of their, you know, they worship this, mm-hmm. this evil and that's all they know. And so that it's kind of a, you know, and, and men too, of, you know, like we saw the kind of the followers of Sauron, like Waldreg were kind of the, never left that kind of evil cult. Um, you know, they, and, and it was interesting seeing Theo kind of being almost taken in by that by that mm-hmm. but then eventually right. being saved and mm-hmm. um hopefully he doesn't become you know some evil character but as an eventual <laughs> redemption i but. i hope he does <laughs> I, yeah I'm, I'm with you i'm with I you i just want to see something very tragic <laughs> we have to have the betrayer in there somewhere you know like the, the second <laughs> age is brutal man yeah. like you've got to get yeah. ready but of course, like yeah. some of these 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 so-called Morgoth worshippers will just worship anyone with power. As Waldrake mm-hmm. says, 
I'll serve you then, whoever yeah. you are. Right. You know, whoever it doesn't care as long as they have power and thinks that by serving him, he can participate in that power. Then so, he's so just this fine. Is when, yeah. yeah, this is one I'm really interested in is, is the um, the Balrocks. I want to see because because that is a an area where there there's literally nothing about you know i mean we know what they are we know why they are but we don't know Mm -hmm. anything else about them and so you could really write some incredible uh especially if we start seeing more Maiar in this upcoming um season we could really see the other side of that and what the balrogs are and and you know maybe i i can't imagine that they are comfortable serving sauron in in replacement for morgoth you know like that right. that's not that's not okay because they're they're basically equals mm-hmm. and possibly even yeah. superior to him in a lot of ways so there's got to be some I, I would love to see that played out and I, I think that would be a really interesting angle for them to take um to kind of dive down that road because you know why why did they not show up at the final battle of the second age that's yeah i wonder if they're going to go into that uh, hopefully so We'll see. Um, well, I think if that, if no one else has any other comments on this, um, we just have a final brief section that I, I thought I found this uh, actually a, a while back. And I, when we started talking about this topic, I said this would be a great place to mention it is the cause for the canonization of Tolkien, which for our listeners may not know, that means the process of him becoming a saint, um, a recognized saint, I should say. Um, and the cause was actually opened, I, I believe, five years ago on the, the anniversary of his death, which is also the date the um, uh, that the show premiered, September 2nd. Um, and it the way it works is, is if a cause is opened, you celebrate a mass for that cause. Uh, and in this case, it was actually celebrated at his par- pre- parish from when he was uh, from his time at um, uh, at the oratory. I'm not sure if it was in Oxford or if, where he taught or if it was just where he grew up. But um, so they started and five years ago, they they did the first mass. And um, I believe the next step. So if, if anyone knows, we you know on our panel, we'd like to kind of discuss um, the. Uh, the kind of the first step is the Vatican would have to recognize the cause for canonization. And at that point, he would be considered a servant of God. So if you've heard servant of God that refers to a someone whose cause is recognized by the Vatican. Mm-hmm. Um, and then to move on from the, the, the servanthood of God um, or to be, to move on from that, the next section would be the beatification, which I believe means one recognized miracle. Um, and, and that can be a variety of things. Um, it can be something like you pray, you, you ask for the intercession of J.R. Tolkien for the healing of, you know, something. And, you could be healed and you could, that information could be relayed to, um, you know, to the, the powers in the church to investigate it. And, um, and that, that, that's a pretty involved process, which <laughs> I'm not as, uh, I, I don't know too much about that, but, um, that is kind of how it goes. And then I believe after, if they confirm a first miracle, he would be called blessed. And mm-hmm. then a mm-hmm. second miracle attributed to him would be, would lead to his, if approved, would lead to his canonization as saint. So, um, which, and I believe ultimately it's the, it's the Holy Father who can, who makes the, those decisions and who, who would canonize a blessed. So, um, 
you know, we're in a time being where uh, the Holy Father, Pope Francis has, I, I was just reading recently, he's canonized more saints than many other recent popes. So, um, you know, there's, and as far as I could tell, there was no update to the cause of canonization and it's been open for five years, but these can take a very long time. So, um, you know, definitely keep that as you can definitely pray for the, and we can still pray for the intercession of Tolkien. It, the way we know he's a saint is the miracle is approved and is confirmed as a miracle, meaning he is interceded for us before God. Um, but, um, and there is, I won't read it here, but there is a prayer for his canonization, which we can include a link in the show notes. Um, mm-hmm. so, um, just even, even if you're not asking for his intercession, we can pray for the cause of his canonization, which I think would be just having the, the guy who wrote Lord of the Rings be a saint would be just be, I think that'd be really cool. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> if G.K. Really Chesterton can have a cause for canonization, then so can J.R.R. Tolkien. <laughs> exactly. And we were talking about <laughs> that. I think someone mentioned that on the Discord for the SQPN recently about the the cause for G.K. Chesterton. So um, definitely, uh, you know, something to keep in mind and to pray for. Uh, but, um, but yeah, it, it began, I believe, five years ago. Um, so you know, we'll see where it goes, but, um, anyone else have any closing thoughts or comments on, uh, the Eucharist on Tolkien's faith, religions in Arda, Hobbit afterlife, anything? (laughs) I just feel like Tolkien was so steeped in his faith that the way that he wove it into his stories is so beautiful because like we said, like anyone can enjoy the Lord of the Rings. The Lord of the Rings is for anyone because Mm -hmm. at its core, it's such a wonderful and exciting story. But then when you do begin to look at it with a Catholic perspective, which is the same one that he wrote it with, you just like uncover so much more. It's almost like an iceberg, how there's just so much more beneath the surface. And so Mm -hmm. even in my conversion to, to Catholicism, like, I already love the Lord of the Rings, but now my love for Tolkien is just so much deeper. And I feel like he's really enriched my faith and the way that I see the world. And so um, it's just super cool. And then seeing even in the rings of power, how we are getting to see Numenor, I hope we'll get to see uh, the way that their own religion and, and the religious practices of the Numenorians kind of played out. So I'm excited to see that. I hope we will get to. Yeah. And even as a cradle Catholic, I can say that my faith, has deepened just by being a fan of the Lord of the Rings and of J.R.R. Tolkien's works, because, you know, just discovering all these deeper layers, you know, has encouraged me to, you know, learn more about the the truths and teachings of our faith. So, you know, it I, I believe, you know, for, for anybody, whether they're Catholic or non-Catholic, there's just so much to learn about Tolkien's worldview and his just how you know how the story kind of exists as as an expression of his beliefs is just a, a really fascinating topic and we could just i'm sure you know there could be an entire podcast series just devoted to it <laughs> definitely yeah yeah it's funny we're talking about his you're finding how much the faith that you deepen because of this and then you have like death metal being written about from Tolkien based off Tolkien's oh, right. work. So it's yeah. just funny how there's, you know, or, you know, maybe not death metal, but you know, heavy, you know, that I'm kind sure. of thing. That's, that's not necessarily Catholic, but he's, you can get, kind of see both ends. Um, he's universal. But, Tolkien is just, yeah. he yeah. transcends all. 
which which is so so much our faith right where it's just mm-hmm. it transcends that um yeah and i i i love the the fact that i learned in this uh the phrase cradle convert <laughs> which is kind of what which is what they called him but i i think i can even one up him on that one that um i was baptized catholic left the faith and came back and you know my running gag is that it was to avoid becoming a priest because i think that would have been something that, you know, like god was like no that's not for you you need to be you're going to be the father of uh, eight children so that's uh <laughs> here you go uh move you away for that bit and then bring you back uh, but, bring you back yeah but so i i really feel i feel that and i feel like it's one of those things where there's so much of there's so much meaning that was steeped into me in that time where I was growing up Catholic, that even being in uh, evangelical churches, uh, I always approached things in a very Catholic way and it rubbed all the people I was with very much the wrong way, but, but uh, you know, cause they, they hated it. It was like, you know, and, and it was like, I, I didn't know where things were in the Bible and they were like, well, you need to prove that. And I'm like, I don't know where it's, it's in there somewhere, you know, because, because it's something that I had grown up hearing, you know? <laughs> and, um, and, and so I would get into so many arguments like that and um, they, they've strengthened my faith, but you know, in, in turn, I think I, I was able to strengthen theirs because I had this conception of it where it's like, you don't have to like know every single little letter of it to get the, the deeper meaning. Right. And I, and I feel like, you know, that's, that's kind of where Tolkien stuff stands is you, you as much as we love it on this podcast, as much as we love like the whole history of everything that goes on, and hopefully we're kind of conveying that love to everybody that's that's listening. Uh, you don't have to know all of this stuff to really enjoy just even the Lord of the Rings, right? So you read the Lord of the Rings. It's very much an incredible story by itself. And the reason it's such an incredible story is because of the richness of everything else that is brought to the table. Well said. Well, um, I think if an, unless anyone else, you know, anything else, I think that's it from us. We'd love to hear what you think about Tolkien's faith the religions of Arda and the Hobbit afterlife. Um, before we, uh, for, we, we'd like to take a moment to thank our patrons and make it possible for us to create the secrets of middle earth, including Mark G, Joshua E, Mary H, Thomas M and Potter M. Their generous donations at sqpn.com slash give make it possible for us to continue the secrets of middle earth and all the shows at StarQuest. You can join them at sqpn.com slash give. And you can let us know your thoughts at sqpn.com slash Middle Earth on our Facebook page or on Twitter. Send an email to Middle Earth at sqpn.com or visit our channel on the StarQuest Discord server at sqpn.com slash Discord. We'll be back soon for an episode discussing, uh, relevant to the theme of St. Valentine, discussing romantic relationships found in Tolkien's works. So until then, Thomas Sanjuro, thank you for joining me and sharing the secrets of Middle Earth. Thank you very much. Thomas Salerno, thank you as well. Thanks so much, Jeff. And Caitlin Fascista, thank you very much. Thank you. And once again, I'm Jeff Hecker. Thank you for listening to the secrets of Middle Earth on StarQuest. Here's another show on the StarQuest Network you're sure to enjoy. PlayStation Portable. Find it wherever fine podcasts are found or at starquest.fm slash PSP.